everyone. Happy holiday seasons. Amanda Fabiano here on episode two of Hashing for the Holidays, a Bitcoin Magazine limited series podcast. Today we have with us three very fun North American based companies. Um, gentlemen, can we do a quick intro? Uh, Todd, do you want to start? Yeah, sure thing. Todd Garland, Great American Mining, and um, we uh, mine on oil fields using flare, flare gas. Awesome. Jason? Uh, Jason Les, CEO of Rock, Riot Blockchain. Riot Blockchain, NASDAQ traded Bitcoin mining company. Uh, we're the owners and operators of Winstone US uh, facility with up to 750 megawatt capacity in Rockdale, Texas. Amazing. And then I can tell by your background, but just in case <laughs> someone isn't watching on video, <laughs> where, where are you? I am Ben Gagnon. I'm the chief mine officer for BitFarms. We're a publicly traded Bitcoin mining company traded on both NASDAQ and the Toronto Stock Exchange. And we operate uh, a number of different mining facilities in Quebec, Canada, the United States, and are also developing new facilities in Paraguay and Argentina. Incredible. So lots of, you know, different experience on, on this conversation, which I, I think we can draw into, um, you know, really what we want to focus on, which is the growth in North America of hash rate, right? So this has been definitely a trend this year that we've seen, especially after the, the Chinese exodus. Um, we, you know, we, we do a lot of research at Galaxy on Bitcoin mining. And we expect that over 14,000 Bitcoins have been mined in Q3 by publicly traded companies, which represents about 17%, right, of the total Bitcoin rewards. And the rise of public mining companies also allow us insight into just the overall industry something that was super, super difficult before. But with that, we're also seeing a lot of companies start to go public via SPAC or IPO. Um, generally, do we think the market is saturated for public miners? Hot take I, there, if you I, think, I think so. <laughs> we've got a, a huge demand here for more and more companies to become publicly traded. I mean, the big drive here is that we're such a capitally intensive industry that you know, if you can't raise capital quickly, flexibly, and, and cost effectively, you really just can't compete in this industry long term. And I think one of the greatest advantages as a publicly traded company is that ability to raise capital, uh, both, you know, through capital markets and through traditional financing entities. Being publicly traded gives a lot of credibility, um, a lot of transparency to an industry that previously didn't have any. So I think this is a, a big positive thing. I think this is a uh, development that shows the evolution of the industry over time. You know, we've gone through several stages uh, over the last uh, 11 years of Bitcoin mining, where we had a uh, transition into hobby miners, to entrepreneurs, to kind of cloud computing companies who, you know, really it was difficult to, to manage any sort of investment through those because it was hard to verify what's going on. I think the public companies is the next evolution of that. And I think we're really just getting started on that. I think over time, there's just going to be more and more publicly traded companies, and there's going to be every incentive, uh, if you are a private miner, to become a public one. Yeah, I, th I think Ben's spot on. Uh, you know, the key point being, this is a capital-intensive business. You need mechanisms, avenues to raising capital to remain as competitive as possible. And public markets, particularly in the United States, offer that. There are a, an enormously, I mean, I, I don't even know the number of public companies today can compared to a year ago, is so much different. There are so many more companies and it's changing on really a weekly basis now because they're all seeing this opportunity and it's becoming a necessity to compete. And I think what we're going to see more so going forward, right now we see like lots of big mining stories going public. You know, these companies um, have existing large operations or they have plans to have large operations as a result of their public listing which is you know, important to get investors buying into your future mission. But what I think we'll start to see is smaller and smaller miners start to go public, um, not necessarily because they're trying to be the biggest miner of the world, in the world, they just try to get in the game. So there's gonna be different tier, more, I think, more um, clearly defined different tiers of miners in the public market. Um, I also think that this phenomenon uh, I mean, phenomenon is maybe the wrong word, but this kind of dynamic that's going on with public Bitcoin miners helps private miners as well, because 
private investors see upside beyond just they don't think okay i'm just invite investing in this private company that equity equity you know maybe very illiquid for many years to come they see that this is private investors both debt and equity see this as an evolution of this industry now so they see more upside with their private uh investments which makes running a private miner uh a bit more easier gives you a, a sense of that access to capital without necessarily taking the full step to go public mm -hmm. And so Todd, obviously you have a private mining company, right? So how does what Ben and what Jason is saying like feed into how you think about scaling GAM? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I think there's still a lot of meat on the bone for the private miners. I don't think it's like a, a go public or, or go home kind of game here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do think that a lot of the current publicly traded miners had significant trade-offs when they did, you know, go on that path to become public. Um, like if you look at a lot, a lot of the cap tables there, I mean, they're primarily owned by um, people who don't work there. Um, so I think if you are a private miner and you're very creative and kind of stay true to Bitcoin mining's economics, you can still do incredibly well and potentially will be even better positioned going into the future. So one of the things that we, what was brought up, um, Ben and Jason, on what you were saying is really like public mining, like, like obviously like there's steps that we see, right, of people who are like, hey, I have X amount of hash right now and I'm going to have X amount in the future. Um, and I think that this has been like a consistent theme that I know all of us like has really like grinded most of our gears, right? Like it's it's really difficult to tell the story of being a, a miner, right? Never mind when you have to tell the story when you're comparing it to people who have a look. I don't want to call it smoke and mirror, but sometimes it feels like it could be a little smoke and mirrory. So how do we how do we think about like valuing public miners, like how do or just generally mining? Like how do you guys think through that as like you know companies within mining? I I think um, I think this industry is so new that the investment investing community is trying to figure that out themselves. And I think the one metric they've start they've grasped an understanding of is hash rate and forward looking hash rate. It seems to me as if a lot of companies are being traded somewhat driven around what their year end twenty twenty two hash rate looks like. And I say that very generally, you know, there's other factors that are playing into this here, but very generally people are looking, investors are looking at this, you know, potential leverage bet they can make with a Bitcoin mining investment. So what is that company going to look like in terms of hash rate, I guess now a, a year from now. Um, but that's of course not the whole story. You know, we all run work for mining companies here. There's a lot more to entering into an order with Bitmain, MicroBT, et cetera. There is a lot of work that goes into getting that miner plugged in, having that underlying infrastructure running to actually be mining and keeping that, uh, keeping that hash rate sustained you know, day over day. So um, you know, in my opinion, the market is going to learn more and more about Bitcoin mining as it remains involved and interested. And I think one of the emerging traits that will become more important over the next you know one to two quarters will be the execution capability and i think that'll stand out a lot amongst different miners yep 100 i mean i think um you know right now like you see these big order announcements and um you know they obviously have an impact but uh come six months a year out once you see who's actually kept up with being able to plug them in and i think everybody here in this podcast knows it'll be a totally different story so yeah, I, I think this is a indication of how early this market is in terms of institutional investor adoption. When I, we had the Bitcoin rally starting in uh, November, December last year, it seems like a lot of people were just desperate to get any exposure that they could and not really understanding the space, they grasped on to probably what was the easiest metric that they could, and that was contracted hash rate. I think as we go on over time, people are going to get more sophisticated in their analysis and, you know, are going to develop a little bit more comprehensive KPIs in terms of how you evaluate all these different miners. Cause there's not very much that, you know, we differentiate ourselves on. I mean, you've got uh, how much hash rate you have now, how much hash rate you have coming, how much Bitcoin you have on balance sheet right now, what's your cost for the hash rate, you know, that you've purchased and, you know, what's your cost to operate that and, and how good of an operator you are in terms of your, your online and your uptime. You know, it's not a whole lot of variables. It's not like we're Pepsi Cola and you've got all these different sub businesses and different categories and different consumer groups. Um, you know, this is something where the, the various valuation differentials really can exist 
sustainably in the long term. Um, I think as people get to understand this industry and they really start to understand these economics, I think there's going to be a lot more uh, a level playing field across the different competitors. And really, it's just going to take some time for people to understand, you know, that contracted hash rate is one thing, but really, you know, your ROI on your hash rate and your new miner purchases is, is probably your key figure. If you pay too much on your hardware, you know, you, you can't get your money back if you're, if you're buying at the peak and the market turns against you. And so this is something that we saw in the last wave of, of publicly traded miners back in 2018. There was a slew of new miners coming onto the market because they could raise capital quickly and easily. Um, but, you know, they didn't last more than a couple of months. And it's really because they, they bought at really high levels and weren't able to operate, you know, that equipment on a cost-effective basis and, and achieve an ROI. So this is going to be a key thing going forward. And I, I think we're really just on the, you know, the starting point of this really just a few analysts are covering the space right now. And most of them have only been doing it, you know, for a matter of months. Yeah, I think you'll see more differentiation as well as time goes on. So, for example, like with uh, Riot becoming more vertically integrated, Windstone, um, the uh, electrical provider you acquired a week or two ago, um, like that's considerable differentiation, you know, uh, on our side, being off grid, having more, uh, more quick access to more expandable megawatts, I think is a point of differentiation as well, um, which is totally different than somebody who Sure, maybe they own a power plant, but they're only ever going to generate 50 megawatts from that power plant. So um, I think we'll see a lot more differentiation as well. And miners have certainly gotten very gritty. Um, and I think that's been something that has been consistent since mining really started, right? Um, we're seeing like a rise of a lot of people trying to home mine too, right? Which is totally a, a different structure and, and ball game than what we're talking about here. Um, but it has been an interesting year in mining. Um, obviously, you know, we've all been in mining for a little bit now, and it seems like there was a point in time when Ben and I were in China together in 2018, where it didn't really seem like a lot of people were talking about mining. And that has totally changed over, since I'd say like the halving. Um, the conversation has totally shifted and people actually want to talk about Bitcoin mining. But the one thing that I agree that we all touched on that is left out is really that operational risk and execution risk, right? It's kind of like what press releases don't tell us, right, in the background. So what do you guys really, uh, you know, obviously, like, you have to share information on all of your companies, both private and public. Like, what do you, what do you think is, like, really distinguishing um, and, and traits that people should look for as they're looking at these different companies? I mean, I would look at the announcement to uh, hash rate online kind of tracking, how that's tracking. I think you'll already start seeing some very stark differences without calling anybody out specifically who's not on this call for what it's worth. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like really just um, the different management teams, how are they going to get beyond whatever their footprint is? You know, um, I mean, obviously Texas is quite a big spot. Um, what happens once that plays out? Like how much, or how much more scale is there there beyond what's currently planned? So what happens yeah, next? I, I think the deployment is, is a big one, you know, because people are so focused on that contracted hash rate, but the hash rate is not worth anything unless it's plugged in and turned online. Um, so, you know, having a deployment schedule and meeting that deployment schedule, I think it's really key. I, I don't think that's something that the market is paying attention to at all. They're so focused on that end of 2022 number that they're ignoring all of the interim. Um, and, you know, mining is, a, a very strong opportunity cost. If you don't have your miner plugged in today, you will never ever get that revenue back. There's, there's just no way that you can recover it. So people are not understanding that there's an opportunity cost to not have your miner plugged in to have it sitting on the floor. Um, and this is, I think, what's separating out a lot of the, you know, the operational strength of the various miners in the field. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just echo the saying that Todd and Ben has said. Um, I think investors, the community should be looking at what were previous announcements, how are those playing out? Okay, understand everyone has difficulties. There's been a multiple of issues that you know affect I, I, probably all of us. You know, global shipping logistics has become very challenging, particularly around the holiday season. Um, but you know that doesn't that doesn't always explain you know such dramatic differences in uh, deployment schedules. Something I think is helping investors see this. Um, which I think I think is so cool is how many YouTube channels cover Bitcoin miners now? Like 
it, I, I every day I like you know I subscribe to all the channels. I'm looking forward to all the videos that get posted, and it's so cool to see this kind of new source of information covering the stocks that's distinct from maybe um, you know sell side analysts that you have you know independent people doing their own analysis. You know maybe they're a little biased depending on how their portfolio is weighted, but they're out there covering these companies, looking at announcements, comparing results, etc. I, I I think that's been very cool. Yo, what is going on, plebs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. The world of crypto can seem like the Wild West sometimes. Soaring highs, crashing lows, celebrity shills, and new coins popping up seemingly out of nowhere every day. Look, we get it because we've been there before. At Bitcoin Magazine, we aim to filter out the noise and help newcomers concentrate on the signal. That's why we focus on Bitcoin only. Learning about Bitcoin may seem intimidating at first, but we've worked hard to break things down in a simple and digestible format that anyone can understand. Bitcoin Magazine has launched a free 21-day email course that teaches you about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. You'll receive one new lesson each day that covers a brand new topic as we guide you down the Bitcoin rabbit hole with quick and easy 3-5 to five minute reads. Not only do you get the free course, but everyone who completes the quiz at the end will earn some free Bitcoin. Start learning and earning Bitcoin today. Visit b.tc forward slash 21 days to enroll. One thing when it comes to operational risk, right, is Jason, obviously what you talked about with shipping and logistics, right? Like that is like a, a big thing that's kind of out of the control of anything that we can really realistically control. Um, but another one is ASICs, right? So nearly 1 million ASICs are on order by publicly trading mining companies to be delivered through year end 2023. So if we're making a conservative assumption on the cost per terahash, we're talking about like $5 billion being spent on ASIC machines. Now that opens up two questions for me. The first one is, can we depend on ASIC manufacturers to deliver on time and, and how we think that we're going to get them delivered? Um, so we'll start there and then I'll ask my next question afterwards. I don't want to overwhelm. Um, Todd, when you think about ASIC procurement, um, how does that affect how you, you, you build a GAM and have you ran into any issues? Yeah, I mean, so we're uh, we're considerably smaller than these other guys. Um, so like our supply chain issues are around, um, you know, like different kinds of uh, infrastructure. So for example, um, uh, we build our um, our uh, uh, data centers on trailers right now, and it's really hard to get trailers because everybody's buying trailers to move stuff around the country. Um, so we're at the point now where we found someone who can build them custom for us, and that's just we're just talking the base of the trailer, and then we build everything else on top of that. Um, so we're seeing those issues left and right. Um, we're um, having to source some uh, parts for containers from, you know, like three or four different um, supply houses for the same part uh, to get the quantities we need. Um, so we're at a point now where we're trying to get ahead of the minor deliveries. Um, and, um, you know, our plan right now is essentially to just have, you know, let's say, let's call it 10 to 20 megawatts of rack space uh, ready to go so that we're changing the problem from like building rack space quick enough to we have it ready to go once the machines arrive and we ship them out. Yeah, it's um, a delicate balance, right? Between yeah. like making sure you have everything up and running to then having yeah. a site up and running without ASICs. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, so, I mean, right now I'll be candid, we're enjoying the delays from some of the mining manufacturers um, because it's making it more easy for us to land stuff on site without much down, you know, that gap in between, so. That's interesting. Um, just, just touching up on that, you know, this is kind of a new development, you know, Amanda, like back when we were 
mining uh, in 2016 and that sort of thing, you know, you were always buying spot miners. It wasn't ever a situation where you're doing a monthly purchase 12 months in advance. I mean, this yeah. is a completely new development that happened with the silicon shortage last year. And it's really the semiconductor foundries that have pushed that out, you know, from going to like a three month lead time to a 12 month lead time. And a lot of these contracts, you know, are, are huge scale. Uh, you would have never had an agreement before where people are buying 10,000, you know, 50,000, 100,000 miners, you know, back in 2016. Um, and now this seems to be the growth story and the demand. Um, you know, realistically speaking, there's no practical way to deploy 100,000 miners within three months. And so if you are targeting those kind of figures, like most of the public companies are, um, you really actually do need those longer lead times. And I think, you know, a lot of reliance is put on a single manufacturer, um, which is a, a risk. Um, you know, you can't have everybody relying on a single company Bitmain, you know, for every single order. Uh, I think the market's destined for some massive disruption um, so as long as we have increasing Bitcoin price next year. And I think that's going to really, you know, put a lot of pressure on the manufacturers to deliver and keep up with these new emerging players that we're probably going to see emerge um, as this bull run continues, you know, to 100K, uh, 200K, et cetera. Yeah, this phenomenon with monthly contracts uh, far out has certainly been an interesting development. I, I believe we entered into an order in April of this year where the final shipment month was October 2022. So, I mean, like that is the so far out yeah. orders. But to, to, to your, your point, Ben, having this more predictable schedule definitely helps with the supporting logistical development. It'd be so much more challenging if we were, you know, you're out there just going spot and, you know, okay, we need to go get 15,000 miners this month or, you know, whatever number, because the infrastructure is now ready. Having this kind of ability to plan, um, I think makes things, uh, alleviates some amount of risk. Of course, it introduces new risk as well. You know, you're, um, there is some forward price risk that, that you encounter around here, you know, changes in technology, uh, changes in, you know, the marketplace as a whole, but um, does help with planning. Yeah, the, the just, risk, uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. I, I was just gonna say, you know, I think this is a sign of the, the evolution of the industry. We're, we're becoming a more like the other data center industry, um, you know, where you are talking about equipment purchases and new builds two, three years out. Um, you know, this is, this is the evolution of the industry. I think it's destined to happen. And I think it's kind of necessary for Bitcoin to scale the network and continue to secure it, you know, um, at the level that it needs to be secured. It, it does bring a little bit more, I think, professionalism into the industry to have those, those longer lead times and for people to be consistently hitting regularly announced milestones, as opposed to, you know, hey, we randomly purchased a thousand miners. Hey, we randomly purchased, you know, 5,000 miners. Um, so I think this is a necessary evolution. It does introduce new risks, but um, I don't really see any way around it. So how do you guys um, model out, you know, expected returns for machines if you don't know the final price of those machines because they could change because the technology can change and the price of those machines can change? That's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek question coming from me because um, <laughs> I also have to answer that question regularly, but it's tough, right? Like you have this whole idea of what you think is going to happen and then it's like, oh, new node, new price of machines, even though you've forward paid for, you know, these machines already. How do you guys get around that risk? Very dynamic modeling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you, um, you know, like everything in life, there's so much uncertainty and risk you know, we can make the best approximation, the best estimates of what this is going to look like. And then we can update as that those assumptions and information changes over time. Um, you know, I, I think it's good to, when you're modeling and planning for this, you are, you know, thinking about different uh, variability and outcomes. You know, hey, what happens when price goes, if price is going up 20%, what happens if price is going down 20%, what happens if this? I think there's a whole multitude of scenarios that it's important to analyze. So in, in the aggregate, you come up with an average case solution that you're planning around. But um, that's just a long way, Amanda, of saying it's, it's very challenging. 
But then how do we explain that to investors too, right? Like people who are like now trying to want to look into Bitcoin mining to like get their hands dirty. And then you say, hey, yeah, mining is a great thing to invest in. And they say, well, tell me my ROIs. And we're like, well, it kind of depends on a few things, right? Um, which is reasonable for most businesses, but it feels like it's a little bit more difficult to explain when you have to explain hash rate price, hash rate price, you know, Bitcoin hardware issues, supply chain constraints. Like how do we get investors comfortable with this both, you know, Todd, from your perspective as a private company and then as a public company? Well, I mean, how I get myself comfortable with it is um, I'm just comfortable with the chaos in general. Um, but I, I, I kind of have a more um, like paper napkin math version of this. So, for example, if like uh, someone's telling me today, just to keep the math simple, that I can buy uh, 50 bucks a terahash um, out in December 2022. And then we know hash rate is going to double based on public analysis between now and then. It's like, okay, so that's like me paying today $100 a terahash. If I could plug that machine in within 14 days today, would I do it? Uh, I'm not going to like it, but I'd probably still do it if I had the space. You know, back to like the hotel analogy. If you don't sell the bed, it's gone forever. Um, so, uh, and, and also knowing that there is some congestion in terms of new chip allocations. Like that's a bet I would make right away today um, as much as I would not enjoy it. Um, uh, other than that, um, you know, um, I think we're all um, operating on a bit of uh, like speculation um, and we're all depending on upon the maturity of this market overall to, to carry us with it. Um, and I think there's a lot of other uh, more people are, I think, starting to see some things that we all saw probably six, seven years ago happen today in their personal lives. Um, so I think that weighs into everything, especially, you know, as you're saying with investors and looking at the space, um, like you can kind of read the tea leaves at this point. So what's going on? We take a, uh, a very pragmatic approach to it. We model everything based on a USD per terahash figure. And then, you know, if, you, if you're looking at your cost per hardware on a USD per terahash, you're looking at the revenue on a USD per terahash, what you can do is you can come up with a high and low scenario. Okay, based on network growth assumptions of this is how many miners are being manufactured every single month. And we forecast this out, you know, uh, six and 12 months. This is what the price range can happen with Bitcoin, you know, up, down $10,000 increments. And we can go from 50,000 down to 10 and we can go from 50,000 up to 100. You know, what we get is a range of USB per terahash scenarios that can happen with the market over the next 12 months. And with that, we can also extrapolate what our ROI is going to be in these various conditions. And so what we do as a miner, instead of hedging against our downside with, with you know, uh, puts and call options and that sort of thing, we want to maintain that maximum upside, but we also want to protect ourselves on the downside by positioning our company to be a low cost producer. And even in a negative, you know, bearish scenario, we're still going to achieve high ROIs and fast ROIs. And so what we say is like, okay, based on the price for our hardware now and what we expect the market can do, even in the worst case scenarios, what's our, what's our worst ROI? And as long as we can plan for our worst ROI, then we're okay in any scenario better than that. And I think that's the way that you have to approach it. Um, you can't go in there with the assumption, like, like a lot of people do, that, hey, this is the economics today. These economics carry forward for the next 12, 15 months. That is, it's, it's mathematically impossible for the economics to stay consistent. And so they, they'll operate in those bands and you have to position yourself as a miner um, on that lower end of that band so that in the worst case scenarios, you're still covered. It's the people who are, you know, targeting, hey, our, all of our math is based on today and they're not anticipating that things can change for the negative over the next six, 12 months. And this is changing, you know, it, it's becoming more complex because the lead times are getting longer but it's also getting more complex too, because they're, you know, like groups like yours, Amanda, um, Galaxy has all these financing options. And so that actually changes the, the picture a lot too. You know, as long as you are uh, able to maintain those payments, that's gonna radically affect how you're looking at those ROI pictures, right? Because for a lot of these miners, it's now becoming a free cash flow. Um, are we able to afford these miners? We're gonna borrow against them. We're going to maintain those uh, those cash payments, and then we're going to keep scaling that, which does kind of compound those problems. But really, I, I think you have to operate in a band and, and position yourself, um, you know, always being hedged against the downside by being a low-cost operator. 
I, yeah, I think that's so key. I think all of us on this call, we're into Bitcoin mining because we believe in Bitcoin and we believe in the future of Bitcoin mining. Like Ben said, you don't want to give up that upside. So, you know, looking at hedging is, you know, not uh, very, very appealing. You want to just focus on protecting your downside for, um, to, to make sure you have a good ROI in all types of market environments. And, you know, the, the, the data is out there. You know, you, you can look at old, uh, financial statements from public companies, you know, look at what their cost of production was or is, and look at what that did to financial results during, you know, the tough times of, you know, late 2018 uh, for mining. This is why having a low cost of production is so important. It's easy to not care about it now when margins are 80% plus and, you know, four cents a kilowatt hour seems nothing compared to six cents a kilowatt hour. Hey, it's all great. But, you know, these type of market conditions don't sustain forever. You want to be positioned, so you're always driving your business forward no matter what. The traditional finance derivative guys are floored right now from this conversation, right? So, <laughs> you know, that also, that brings me to my second question when it comes to ASICs, right? So this is a massive market for people like Galaxy to, to create financial solutions for Bitcoin miners. So, you know, when we think about, treasury management, right? And also, you know, just like how we get access to capital beyond, you know, just being a public miner. How do you guys think about that for each one of your companies? You know, treasury management, I think is a, a really interesting and new field. If you looked at the public miners as of a couple of years ago, there was actually very little Bitcoin being held on the balance sheet. Um, you know, most of the operators were, were selling everything uh, that they were mining. And so this wasn't really about that long-term upside and what that Bitcoin asset can do for you as a company and the opportunities that it can provide to you in terms of borrowing against it and, and you know, it being a strategic credit facility. Uh, really, it was just seen as, as a quick cash flow. I think the industry's really changed as of this year. It seems like every single public miner now is is going very, very heavy on the HODL strategy. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know of a, a single, maybe with the exception of, I think Iris Energy, um, I think they're selling um, all or most of the Bitcoin that they mined. But other than them, um, this is a, a long-term HODL. And I think the, the asset is really, really interesting because of groups like Galaxy. You know, this is another way for us to raise uh, capital at really, really cost-effective means, you know, fast, flexibly, um, and, and again, at a low cost. And so if you're looking at how do you raise money for your company, you know, you have a couple of assets and um, borrowing against your equipment is one of them. Uh, borrowing against your Bitcoin is another one or using the capital market is another one. And, you know, obviously there's going to be a balanced approach is, is the most desirable of the three. You don't want to be over leveraged in terms of your debt. Um, but that Bitcoin as, as a strategic facility is really good. And if you can borrow against the Bitcoin, to pay for your operating expense as opposed to selling your Bitcoin, then you preserve all that upside for the minimum cost of capital that it takes to borrow against it. So I think this is a real interesting thing. Um, we haven't seen how this is all going to play out yet, but I think most of the miners are anticipating that Bitcoin is going to reach, you know, six figures sometime next year and beyond. And so while you have 80, 90% gross mining margins now, you know, if you're not selling until after six figures, it's well worth the cost of capital to borrow against it. And so this is, this is real changing dynamic that we haven't seen play out before. Um, but it seems like every miner is, is going down this path um, because it is it's one of the most valuable things that you can have. And if companies like MicroStrategy you know, can issue huge amounts of debt to acquire huge amounts of Bitcoin on their balance sheet as, as a strategic asset, you know, surely Bitcoin miners um, should consider this as a strategy as well. Uh, especially since we have such a lower cost of acquisition. You know, we're producing Bitcoin for well under $10,000 when the market value is 40, 50, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, the other public companies who are acquiring it can only acquire prevailing market prices. And so this becomes a real strategic advantage for us and nobody can increase their profit margins. Uh, you know, like us, it's hard to imagine a, like a, a steel producer holding on to just huge amounts of steel because there's a huge cost to do so. Um, and they can't borrow against their steel, you know, that's sitting there in, in, in inventory. But we as public miners do have a lot of strategic advantage there. It's no cost, essentially, to store it long term. Um, and there's lots of things that we can do it for the benefit of our company. 
Yeah, it's been great to see the emerging, you could say, tool set that miners have to raise capital to avoid having to sell Bitcoin. Um, I think it becomes particularly a bit easier right now during you know these very strong markets. There's you know an excess amount of not excess, but there's readily amount of capital available for financing. You know, in a bear market, won't necessarily be that case for, for all operators. It will be get become a lot more of a squeeze and, and tougher to hold on to that Bitcoin. But um, the competition around the space has been driving down the rates for Bitcoin back loans, driving back the LTV ratio. Like this is this is great for the industry. This is you know a kind of a great tool set. Uh, just talking about you know specifically Riot. One of the things we're trying to do to help enable us to hold on to as much Bitcoin as possible is utilize the hosting segment of our business to pay those self-mining expenses. We are not there right now, you know, by any means, but that's something that we think about. And it's a goal we think about of, you know, trying to create this little well-oiled machine where one hand is paying for the other hand and we can try to retain as much Bitcoin as possible. But um, yeah, they, they, you know, utilizing these tools um, certainly pay for themselves. Like Ben stated, you know, if you're bullish on Bitcoin, you're thinking about a six-figure Bitcoin price in the future. Uh, it, it is worth it to retain as much as possible, and that you know would would make up for that debt financing cost or, or any type of financing cost. I mean, we've been leveraging our Bitcoin now, I think, since early 2019 uh, to fund growth, um, and you know, now we're in a period where we're valuing growth higher than holding that Bitcoin on our balance sheet. Sheet, I. Um, kind of cringe to admit that, but this is a temporary period where we expect we'll be phasing out of that, um, you know, into next year. So it's really hard to think about selling a single Bitcoin that you mine, especially at the rates that we're all mining it at. Right? That's like the the tough part. Um, you know, I, I think Treasury management will be a really interesting thing for miners over the next two years. Um, I think that the ones that get it right will be the ones that will be able to hold on to that Bitcoin longer term and. And last, um, what one thing, well, before we switch, sorry, Amanda, one thing I wanted to add is kind of the contrasting feedback that I get from the public on this topic. Mm-hmm. Retail investors, you know, institutional investors as well, but the retail investors love the idea of, you know, holding on to as much Bitcoin as possible because they are aligned with the company's mission of the future value of Bitcoin. There are an increasing number of institutions that think the exact opposite. I, I talked to an investor the, the other week and he was like, I don't get it, man. Why can't you just sell all the Bitcoin you mine? Just act like a normal business, you know, sell the thing that you make. And I'm like, well, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of upside here, or we perceive there's a lot of upside here. We believe in the future and we want to partic- we want to have, be positioned to participate in that. So yeah, j- just wanted to add, it's interesting to see the conflicting, uh, you know, feedback on, on this from uh, investors. Yeah, and that investor must be relatively new to Bitcoin because yeah. if he was around for like the last bear market, he would have seen the miners who made it versus the ones who didn't were the ones that helped. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty fascinating. Um, <laughs> um, what do you think are the major drawbacks to being either private or public? Well, there, there's certainly an increased cost, um, both in terms of just expenses you have from audit, legal, finance, but mm-hmm. also the cost of um, time management has to put into doing these things. You know, going through audits, you know, preparing financial statements. That these these are especially you know for an SEC issuer, these are uh, these are really big undertakings, and that a lot of resources has to come in from the company to stay current and to be accurate and be complete with these filings. Um, I think the other uh, downside is, I, I wouldn't say, maybe I, I wouldn't go as far to call this a downside because I think being public overall has great advantages. But, you know, as compared to a private company, we don't have the same, you know, maybe uh, we have to disclose all of our material contracts. We have to disclose, you know, kind of what's going on. And that makes a company more investable. That's why I didn't want to call that a downside. You know, the fact that a shareholder can see what's going on, they have a full complete picture of the company that in- inspires confidence, gives them the information they need to make an investment decision. But you know, if you were trying to operate in stealth, if you had some sort of big idea you wanted to keep you know, secret for competitive reasons, 
still possible as a public company, but you know, creates a lot more challenges. So um, you know, in, in some regards, you know, sometimes you got envy a company like a, a company like Todd's, where they're kind of you know able to operate and you know execute on their plans and maybe not uh, have to you know give up anything to competitors who could you can maybe learn from them. I think we definitely have, you know, a lot of extra things that we have to do as a public miner that you would never have to do as a private miner. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot more audits, a lot more overhead, a lot more, you know, keeping up with the forms and everything else. But I think at the end of the day, the ability to raise capital um, at a lower cost and, and raise the money from strategic investors by being a public company is, is well worth going through all those different challenges. You know, in the past, um, I've, I've done a number of different uh, smaller Bitcoin ventures and raising money from investors tends to be a, a bit of a, a challenge because you've got to prove and you've got to verify your numbers. Having an auditor, like, like we have a, a big four auditor that provides a lot of confidence in our numbers to investors when they say, okay, your hash rate is actually your hash rate. Your numbers are actually your numbers. Um, and that's not really something that, that's so easy uh, if, if you're not doing those different things. So I think it's a, it's an advantage, but it does limit you a little bit um, on the flexibility side. You know, we have to go through things. As a result of that, we have to go through things a little bit slower. We have to be a little bit more prudent in our risk management. We've got to balance everything a little bit more evenly. Whereas, you know, uh, I'm a mega Bitcoin bull um, and a mega Bitcoin maximalist. You know, sometimes you just want to go, 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 go. But, you know, you have to take a more balanced approach. And I think a private company can do that. Um, a little bit more flexibly, but you know they could be doing that at a higher cost of capital. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd just say that, like, um, you know, we can still, as a private company, we can still do those things that are painful, but that give investors comfort, like an audit. Like we we just started one this week that we're putting ourselves through, so that we're, um, you know, so we have that process in place. Um, and you know, to Jason's point, like I don't envy those additional costs you guys have to, you know, be you know, to operate in the public markets, because at the end of the day, that still gets factored into what your what your costs are. So I think that's a, a minor advantage that, you know, theoretically offsets some of those um, cost of capital um, points you made, Ben. Um, I think as well, though, like the, um, you know, 2018 to 2022, for sure, far easier to raise money as a publicly traded miner. That I don't think that's necessarily going to hold true into the future, though. Uh, I think there's a million people who want exposure to this kind of an asset. Um, and you know maybe we don't have the same rails to to get them there um but um there's a lot of people out there yo my fellow bitcoin lovers have i got something specifically curated for you the deep dive is bitcoin magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter this isn't some pay group selling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on chain in the derivatives markets and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your paid group and learn why Bitcoin is the ultimate asset by Dylan and his team. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. So one thing that's kind of interesting that also came up in the last podcast was that 
but we're not accounting for the job creation that is happening around mining beyond just people plugging in machines. Yeah. Right. So now we have big four auditors, like Ben was saying, that he uses that has to understand mining in order to audit it. Right. And so I think the tentacles of Bitcoin mining have started to like really spread into different parts and in, in, of you know multiple different industries. And I think that's kind of a really fascinating thing to think of. Um, like people on our ops team have to understand why we're making certain decisions to be able to tell the auditor why we're making certain decisions. And I think that it's it's really interesting to to think about the amount of people now that are working in Bitcoin mining, um, you know, as it what as it is today versus like three years ago. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Like, uh, you know, being up uh, on oil fields in North Dakota, you know, you've got an electrician who's coming to, um, you know, because he's permitted to operate in the state. He's coming to do our final hookups. We're essentially setting up a power grid off the grid every time we do this. Um, now, instead of him just having the oil companies as a customer, he's got us. So, I mean, he's theoretically doubled his work for every site. If every site ends up with a Bitcoin miner there, um, you take truckers up there. You know, we have to use specific um, trucking companies to bring these things who are qualified on the oil fields. Um, you know, you take, and I know you guys see this as well, just like your standard electrician um, uh, who's got a little bit of an edge and is into some stuff that's a little further out there, like the stuff we deal with in terms of the intensity. And you now transform, you know, this like career path to something totally different for them. Um, you know, you take fabricators. I mean, it's, it's throughout, um, you know, most industries that can get their hands dirty, you know, so it's pretty cool. I think this is one of the key parts about the, uh, the pendulum swinging back to North America that is often misunderstood. You know, we have a situation in the U.S. where uh, the U.S. went heavily, in, you know, industrialized throughout the 20th century, but then they exported everything and outsourced it to third world countries. And, you know, especially where we are in Quebec, uh, you know, we're running all on hydroelectric power that was built primarily by heavy industry, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. This was companies like the Iron Ore Company in Canada, companies like Rio Tinto, gold mining companies, logging companies, they were setting up remote industrial uh, operations in the province of Quebec. And the only way to power those economically and sustainably was with this, you know, construction of a renewable energy dam, like a hydroelectric dam. Um, there was no way that they were going to bring in the diesel uh, or bring in, you know, the coal or anything like that and make that work cost effectively. And so as they scaled back or as they shut down or outsourced or built up a more efficient smelter somewhere else, you know, these hydroelectric dams remain there, um, these communities remain there, but the jobs just disappeared. And nobody's ever wanted to reinvest in these remote communities. Um, they've sat, you know, kind of dormant and economically depressed for decades on end, because a lot of the time, it would be only one corporation that is providing the vast majority of the jobs. And it's probably the only reason why that town exists in the first place. And so once that industry left, there was a big glut. And now Bitcoin miners are finally saying, hey, these areas are actually worth it for us to invest in because we don't care about the remote uh, costs. Uh, the logistics don't really matter to us as much. It's not like we're importing a bunch of raw materials and exporting a bunch of finished goods. You know, we're trying to take advantage of the lowest cost energy and the lowest cost energy exists in the place where nobody else wants it. And so when we come into these remote communities, we're creating jobs that, you know, have not existed. Like in the province of Quebec, we've taken over a number of industrial facilities, a former hockey stick factory being one of them. You know, it sat dormant for 30 years. Um, nobody wanted to invest in that infrastructure, and we did. And we brought a number of jobs there, which was a huge economic boon to the community. And I, I think that's a, a very, very important part of the story that people need to understand. We're providing good, high-paying jobs, especially in these remote communities that desperately need the economic activity. Yeah, yeah. To test that, just to echo Ben there, the high paying point, without a doubt, um, like we definitely end up paying these people more than they're making elsewhere um, because the economics provide for that, so. This is a great story that doesn't get told enough in Bitcoin mining. It's something that we should all work on to get out there more. There's this misconception that Bitcoin mining means just computers packed up, no you know, workforce needed to make that happen. Cannot be further from the truth. There is so much work that goes into building these operations and maintaining those operations. So, you know, Ben mentioned the smelting plants that get shut down. Um, 
the windstone facility is located off site where it was a former Alcoa aluminum smelting plant that got shut down in 2008 and that decimated that community. It was an entire city built around that plant. And like, like, like Ben said, miners are agnostic to the location that they come in. Wherever we can get that cheap power, we will go. And in Rockdale, uh, Rockdale, Texas, where Winston is located, we have created approximately, you know, 160 jobs at that site. And that's just employees, not including contractors, um, to, to build that site and execute on the expansion plans we have going on. And that might not sound like a huge number, but when you're talking about isolated communities that have a population of 5,000 or so, that becomes very meaningful, not even to mention the indirect benefits that go to that community from the indirect jobs that are needed for these you know, new people that are coming to the communities, for the tax benefits that come, for the things that I know we all do with our companies to give back to the communities that we operate in. Bitcoin miners have a very you know, meaningful social impact. I know a lot of people like to talk about ESG and a lot of the focus is around, you know, energy and energy mix, but there's still an S in there. And I think Bitcoin miners are exceptional at that component allied with the community and giving back to their community. Yeah, the, and you know, Jason, 160 jobs in one location is just really also like front office. You, you guys have people that work, you know, in all different places that support like your business. So. Yeah, that's 160, you know, that's a lot of that are, are, are builders, you know, we, we have admin, we have management, we have administrative staff on that site, but there's people, you know, that are building the foreman that supervise their teams underneath them. And then you're, you're right, we have the, um, you know, the whole riot corporate office that run, runs right at a corporate level. And with this, you know, uh, acquisition of ESS Metron uh, the other week, adding, you know, electrical engineering, um, manufacturing uh, in-house, you know, that's kind of added even more to the employee count. So I think, um, I, I think building things, I forgot who said this recently, but I think it's a great point. Building things is how you get more Bitcoin and you need people to build things. Mm -hmm. Nicely put. So entering into another year, right, of Bitcoin mining, do we have any, I hate predictions, but do we have any themes that we think we're going to see next year? You so say name? Themes, but we'll see yeah. lots of themes. What are they going to be the emerging 2022 <laughs> 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 Um, I, I think the public miner thing is going to be a, a continuing big story. Uh, I think the, the monetization of energy is going to be a really, really big one. Uh, you know, we see this everywhere we go is, is electric companies and energy companies looking to the Bitcoin market as an alternative place for them to sell their energy. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what energy market you're looking at unless you're looking at a place like New York City or a remote island like, you know, uh, St. Lucia or something like that. You know, it's probably the best market for you to sell your energy to is the Bitcoin mining market. And so all of these groups are starting to look at that. And this is also something that's starting to change, you know, the, the renewable energy picture a big, a lot. Um, if we can come in there and we can provide that response, uh, response demand, that's a really big deal. Um, people never really had an idea that this was a problem that was solvable. You know, traditional data centers have to run with massive diesel generators as backup. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, whoever, you know, they may be powered by renewable energy. But the second that energy goes out, they crank up the diesel generators because, you know, if for one second you can't access Twitter, um, people are going to lose their minds. But the, the Bitcoin mining thing is coming in there with that demand responsive grid. And this is solving a problem that nobody ever thought was doable. I think that will be a really, really big theme next year. And it really is the big driving force on the ESG, um, you know we're monetizing energy that otherwise can't be used or otherwise wouldn't be wanted. Um, and that's going to be having huge knock-on effects, you know, economically throughout everybody. It's through the utility, it's through the grid, it's through better prices for the consumers, it's through a more balanced load through the consumers. Um, I think those will be the big driving stories and, and possibly the emergence of, you know, some new mining manufacturers potentially in North America, because this is a, this is a, a thing that, you know, we're seeing happening as the China mining ban, you know, continues to take hold. And I, I think there's still a lot of mining 
uh, still taking place in China that hasn't been cracked down um, yet, probably will be, you know, later next year at some point and, you know, for, for probably many more years to come. But one of the problems with that, or one of the things that we'll see with that is also um, the transition of hash rate to North America and probably the transition of manufacturers to North America, because as the companies in North America become more sophisticated, become publicly traded, become audited, investors become more, you know, in tune, they're also going to want to have contracts with American manufacturers. And I, I think this is going to be a, a huge prevailing theme as we have the next Bitcoin bull market next year. Yeah, I mean, once again, on point with everything Ben uh, said there, and I think, <laughs> what can I say? It's just a lot of things that I agree with. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, I I'd also think that because of the a combination of, of both, you know, the difficulty to get on the miners, to get, you know, orders of miners, which in turn drives up the price of miners, I think there's going to be growing work and innovation around um, making the most of you know, maximizing the output, the performance of the miners that you do have. So obviously I'm thinking about things like immersion cooling, thinking about third-party uh, firmware to unlock greater output. Um, immersion cooling, I think is becoming uh, more feasible now. You know, in the past, it was certainly cost prohibitive. Um, didn't really ever see it on a, on a big scale, but I think uh, through innovation and competition in that space, that type of infrastructure is going to become more available and more uh, in use in Bitcoin mining. And then that helps enable kind of these other operational benefits you can get from running third party from running your machines, doing, you know, doing whatever to improve the efficiency and output of your, uh, of, uh, of your, uh, of your fleet of hardware. So um yeah, definitely exciting to see. Uh, excited to see what happens there. Um, people motivated as a, as a, from a lack of supply, motivated from too high of prices, and looking how to make their operations more efficient with their own innovation. Um, well, there's one thing I want to agree with. I think uh, you guys uh, overestimate the public's ability to really get down into the nuts and bolts of what we do and why it's good. So I think we're going to continue to get clobbered over the head. In the media, anyway, for being you know the horrible people or whatever whatever it is, I just I've seen no evidence yet that like they're going to overcome some of those um, same talking points we see every bad article published about Bitcoin. Um, so I think that's going to continue to be a struggle. Um, I think in general, um, one thing we might not see, um, and maybe this is too optimistic, but uh, at home mining, it's like, well, how big of an impact can it really have? And it's like, well. I mean, you get enough people orange pilled on Bitcoin who want to heat their garage for, you know, 200 bucks a month and make some Bitcoin off that. Would a million people do that? Two million people do that? Maybe that's too many, but like, I wouldn't underestimate home-based mining. Um, and then, of course, I got to talk about the book here. I think we'll see more uh, mobile miners, someone like myself who will back a truck up to a trailer and bring it wherever the cheapest energy is. Um, and to your point, Jason, with immersion, I think um, that's what will and also what will also enable folks like myself to get into uh, West Texas, where uh, cooling can be challenging in a dense uh, space um, with immersion helping us overcome that. Now, Scott, I, I am going to disagree with you a little bit and use your company as an example. Um, you know, here you guys are using a bunch of flare gas and, and doing flare gas mitigation on, on you know some of your projects, and I think this is a this is one of the key things that is really going to drive home the environmental angle. You know, for, for the first time ever, we actually have a non-government subsidy that is providing a direct incentive to reduce carbon emissions. And yep. we have never, ever seen such a thing. Um, yep. There is no greater technology on the planet today um, that exists that is a better at reducing emissions than Bitcoin mining. And it's a direct economic incentive that incentivizes, you know, almost every energy producer out there to reduce their emissions without any government subsidy. You know, as we get a greater and greater pressure on the environmental side of things, especially on the, the CO2 and the emission side, you know, Bitcoin is, is going to be at the forefront of the solution to address this. Um, and there is a way for people to increase, you know, oil production, increase net gas, and also reduce emissions. And, you know, we can't have the gasification of all coal plants in North America and Europe without increasing supplies of natural gas, increasing natural gas producing facilities, increasing amounts of natural gas pipelines. Currently, the, the story is we need to shut down new pipelines. We can't allow new construction. Um, 
but that's simply not an economically viable story. And so as we see uh, pressure you know, on inflation and commodities, especially on the net gas side of things, I think Bitcoin is going to come in there to help ease those pressures. And it's going to be a big, big thing next year. And as legislators, regulators, and politicians and bureaucrats start to figure this out and, and you know, corporate CEOs figure this out, this is going to be a huge game changer for the industry. Um, this is the only technology that exists yeah. that provides that incentive. And, and without it, you know, it, it's kind of crazy to think what we could be emitting um, if they wanted to ban Bitcoin mining. So I, I think that is, you know, and companies like yours are doing a great job at that. And so I think that's going to be a big driving force next year. Cool. Do you mind uh, sending me a headshot? And if I put <laughs> into our uh, latest deck, that'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> I actually, I think that there's going to be a lot more M&A activity in mining. That's my take for next year. A little bit less philosophical than you guys, but I do think that there'll be some, uh, some yeah. natural like synergies um, between larger companies and smaller companies in the space. So that's yeah. what I'm keeping my eye on. Cool. I think that makes sense too. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of opportunities out there in the space. And if you want to grow quickly, M&A is the way to do that. I mean, we just acquired a site in Washington and enabled us to get a foothold in the United States. And that's the way we like to grow is, you know, acquire something small and, and, and grow it out to its full potential. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff happening. Yep. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time. Happy holidays. And um, this will be posted on Bitcoin Mag. So that's great. Awesome. That was fun. Yeah. That was thanks awesome. Guys, thank thanks, you, everyone. Bitcoin Mag. Bye, okay. guys. Bye, Mag. Bye.